Thanks, worship team. Morning, Hillcrest family. Yeah, that last uh, last song. And thanks for the shout out, Jack. Earlier, do I call people out? That never happens. It never happens. Um, does it, Dave? That never happens. Um, yeah, fall, and fall is here. Man, I felt like when I got out of bed this morning, it was dark. Dang. Um, so just as we, uh, as we continue in our, our gathering, um, that last song felt incredibly, incredibly appropriate. Just um, uh, breakers crash and bring us fall into our knees, and, and we cry out, where is our God? And so I, if you've been following the news, um, if it's anything like I uh, sometimes get into the unending rabbit hole, just what's going on in Israel is top of mind in my head, in my heart. Um, I, I rolled out of bed and, um, and uh, had some coffee and, and felt no uh, level of pressure or angst that was weighing on me, and yet that's not the case for people all across the globe. And so one of our values around here is desperate and dependent prayer. Um, for, for Israel, this is the greatest loss of life uh, since the Holocaust, which shocked me, um, just to put that in perspective. And so one of our values, it's our fifth value, when breakers crash and bring us fall into our knees, where, where does your heart go? Does it, play, does it go to a place of fear or anger or frustration? Our posture that we long to take is one of desperate independent prayer, uh, that we do believe prayer is the work. And so, um, so we want to pray. We want to pray for our homes and our neighborhood, uh, for our state and our nation and our world. Um, Myanmar still has challenges that are taking place. Um, we think of Ukraine, but most specifically right now, just thinking of Israel and, uh, and this uh, terrorist attack and the war that is breaking out and the loss of life, that we lament and mourn uh, that pain that's taking place. And we cry out to a God who does hear, and we long for him to continue to bring peace. Circumstantially, yes, but beyond that, we long for Israel, for anyone who is Israeli to, uh, to, who bears the image of God, that they would search the scriptures and find life in, in the Savior, that we would pray for any non-Israelis, these image bearers of God, that they, they would turn to Christ Jesus the King. And in all of this, pray that the gospel would advance in the lives of many people in the midst of this. So, um, we're just going to open it up, and so if you feel you'd like to pray, I'll prompt us from each of those three, but if you want to pray, if, if God is stirring even in you to pray for what's going on and taking place, I hope you feel that freedom. Otherwise, I'll, I would encourage you pray in your hearts as you feel led at your seats, and we will uh, just spend a minute pausing, trusting that God, uh, where is our God? <laughs> Our salvation is found in him and him alone. So pray with me. God, we cry out in the midst of our homes and neighborhoods, knowing that there are challenging circumstances. Uh, would you continue to meet us where we're at in our lives?
God, we think of our state, our nation was stirring up within our context where we're planted, uh, that you continue to uh, draw people to yourself. And God, like we've prayed, we cry out with desperate dependence on you to move uh, in the world globally, uh, most specifically right now, just our heart uh, mourns and laments just the the challenges of war and what that uh, creates for many lives. And so we long for your peace to to come to earth uh, and the promise of one day finding... uh, uh, eternal shalom in, in, uh, and with the Prince of Peace. Always for your glory we pray and the joy in this journey of life. Amen. Amen. So that, that's, that's uh, I imagine, high on your list as well of what, what Jesus might be stirring and bringing to your mind. And if you've been following in Luke, where we're at, we're in Luke 14 today, but I want to pull back just to briefly look at a few verses along the way since Luke 11. Because Jesus, if you have been following along, has just been warning us uh, of what it means to strive after him. And it started back, I think, in Luke 11, where he said these words. He's coming out of uh, a conversation and, and near the end gives this call. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. And we spent time sitting in that reality, reflecting on our own life. And then in one of the parables, he told about a rich man, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So was the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And then a few weeks ago, uh, he talked about the tower that fell and, and some deaths that occurred, and people asked Jesus, what, what did they do wrong? And Jesus says, it's not karma, it is not, and it's not even about them, it's more about you. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then just a couple weeks ago, introduced the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able. And the emotion that might get stirred up in us is one that that God is somehow angry, that, that he's somehow judging those with this vindictive, revengeful heart, and you just feel anger or feel like you've disappointed God. Instead, the illustration we saw last week was what? And it was the second time I've held a chicken in my life. The first time was first service, was the two times under my wings to find protection and shelter, that he cares for people. And so in the midst of the warnings, don't miss the metaphor we saw was one of a mother hen. And this week, as we continue, we're in Luke 14. I think that narrow door is in view. 
And that Jesus, Jesus is now going to reiterate principles for pleasing God and responding to the call to follow him. And if we genuinely treasure Jesus, we follow his lead. And so he's going to share four principles with us this morning. And I don't think there's going to be anything new necessarily. So what we're going to attempt to do is the principle might be familiar. We're just going to try and peel back a few layers of what it would mean to live into that principle. So I'm guessing for most of us, if not all of us, the principles aren't going to be new. You're not going to be like, wow, I've never heard of that, never thought of that, never considered it. My guess is for many of us, they're going to be familiar principles. And we're going to try to press in to to truly apply these principles. So here's the first one in, in Luke 14, and we're just going to move through Luke 14. So if you have a Bible, Luke 14, if you have a tablet, Open to Luke 14. If you have NIV, ESV, I'll be using the ESV, but whatever translation, happy for wherever you find yourself. The first principle he shares, nothing new. Jesus demonstrates compassion, and so he invites us into a life of compassion. Here's what he says. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, and here's what's fascinating to me. We're going to find him in a home that he's been invited into, and Jesus loves truth. Jesus loves truth, and though he's been invited as a guest, he he doesn't hold back. He shares what he is inviting people into, namely following him. So on a Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And dropsy being, I think, some type of like inability to relinquish liquids. liquids. Your body just starts to overwhelm. Is that right, doctor? Is that right? Same as, I asked Brian first service, and he's like, that's not my expertise, David. Another doctor, not just staying out of his, or yeah, you're like, I I just cut people up and sew them back together. That's my rule. So, dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him. And and so what we love about these Pharisees, we're, we're in Luke 14, they've gotten smarter. They understand Jesus is constantly pressing them. And so now, what's the posture they take? <laughs> they understand, we're not going to respond to him. He's, he's going to do something, and we're going to be caught. So they remain silent. And when he said these things, which of you have a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. What's the call to action? What, he, what is he saying? He is calling this heart for what it means to be in relationship with God. He heals on the Sabbath to to diminish. It's not about the rules. It's not about this is what we do on the Sabbath. He's trying to shatter that paradigm. And he's trying to call them to say, this is what relationship with God looks like. And so we see how the Pharisees respond. They love to promote rule following. And Jesus instead says in God's economy, it's not just simply about following these rules. Instead, he steps into a situation and demonstrates compassion. And so what do we see? We see, and again, I would assume nothing new at this point. Jesus is not glorified when we promote the following of rules as an expression of our faith. Instead, Jesus is glorified when we live by the principles that flow from his character. That he's trying to shatter the sense of rule following and see that when we understand who God is and what he's done in our life, there's an inevitable expression, namely compassion in this particular case, that flows from our life. And so the question then, I don't know about you, growing up in the church, is this what you heard? 
Or did what you hear was, if you follow enough rules and do the things the right way, then you're good with God. There's, there's a, a quote for me, and this maybe uh, uh, betrays the demographic I love hanging with. I remember there's a quote, don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do, right? I mean, that's, that's the line. If you just follow the rules, you're good. And yet, what does Jesus say? He, he says, I'm glorified when we live by the principles, the heart. Psalm 51, it's not bulls and goats, it's not sacrifice, but a broken and contrite heart that Jesus, that God desires. And so, when is it rules... And when is it God's character? Because here's, here's what seems to happen. We long to follow God. And so what inevitably starts happening? We just start making rules. And so when is it rules? And when is it flowing from God's character? I, I want to offer a potential criteria in, in the decisions we make. Because we make decisions every single day. You made a decision to be here this morning, Right? You make a decision when you go to work, as you interact with those around you. What is prompting? What's the grid? What's the lens if we long to demonstrate this compassion? The first one, does your heart long to display his glory? As we move through life, does your heart long that in your decisions, people will see and recognize the glory of God? Is that preeminent in your mind? Is that what drives the decisions And the choices you make in life, is that what it looks like? Or, these are the rules and this is what we do. This is what we have to do. I hope around here, we don't should on anybody. We don't ought or have to. Instead, we say, what does it look like to actually experience deep happiness in the midst of glorifying God? If the grid is to glorify God, is there deep happiness to be found in following the way he designed life to work? To demonstrate compassion actually brings us delight, not just personally, but why we actually want to be people helping people help them experience the happiness that we enjoy. Which means, is there experience of joy in your life? when we think of demonstrating compassion as a reflection of God's character. Now, here's the challenge, right? When I think of our culture, where does our culture tend to be in this journey? It feels like we're no longer one of legalism and rule following. feels like, from my vantage point, we've shifted to the other extreme, and someone can correct me on the term antinomianism. Is that correct? the understanding that we've shifted away and, and it's more towards the licentiousness of life, that, that we've done away with legalism and so let's party. And so the challenge for me is we look around at a culture <laughs> that, that is no longer legalistic in its practices, but more choosing to enjoy whatever it believes will bring the deepest happiness that we would say, I would say, is actually shallow. Where's that getting most expressed right now? From my vantage point, and we're seeing it in the state of Wisconsin, we just had a bill proposed to the legislature, it got denied, but it's around human sexuality. And so I just assume at some point, uh, there would be someone asking me, us, to officiate a same-sex wedding, to which we'd say no. And they would accuse me 
of legalism. They'd say, David, why are you putting rules around how this thing's supposed to work? Don't you say it's supposed to just flow from, from, uh, from God's character? And it's just not about rules, David. Why are you making it? And they would accuse me of actually starting to put rules around this thing, to which we would say, that's not the desire. The hope is to show compassion that flows from God's character, trying to help people find the best way to live. It's not about a rule instead. It's inviting them to experience the happiness that we enjoy. And so there's the challenge. We had a four-week human sexuality series in May. And we had one of our people share about a story. Would they say they're gay? They would say they wrestle with same-sex attraction. And yet they found more happiness in the way God designed life to work. And so they fight for his design. It's not about the rules. It's not about the rules. It's about fighting for God's character and demonstrating compassion that flows from that. But that doesn't mean there's no lines to invite people in. You feel that? Feel the tension there? But what's our tendency sometimes is to start putting rules. Second, the second the second principle Jesus gives for those who are living this life in the kingdom, we demonstrate compassion and we live with humility rather than be self-seeking. Here's what Jesus says. Now he told them a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who was invited by you both will come and say to you, give your place to the person. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this, this parable feels like it has modern-day implications. Do you have a particular story that comes to mind when you think of this? I think of weddings. When you go to a wedding, you find out pretty quickly where you stand in relation to the bride and groom. Is that true? You find out pretty quickly, and you're like, why am I seated in the back next to the closet. I thought I had a better relationship with the bride and groom, right? I mean, and then other times you might be surprised and go, wow, I didn't, didn't realize I'm actually just sitting right behind the family. One of the most awkward points is if, if it was a wedding and what would happen? You went and sat in grandma's seat right here in the front, right? And then one of the groom or one of the, one of the, one of the, <laughs> one of the groomsmen comes and finds you and you would, and they would say, hey, you're actually sitting in grandma's seat. Would you follow me? And we're going to make our way to the back, right? It'd be one of the most awkward places. We understand this general principle. What's the general principle? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, pursued positions of status. Jesus instead says those who experience life in the kingdom are humble. And there's, and there's a verse that comes immediately to mind when thinking about the humility of our Savior. Anyone know it? It's always bad to like quiz you guys and then someone says something different than what I already have planned because you know it's already up on the slide. Philippians 2. Jesus describes what his humility looked like. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How? How did Jesus empty himself? 
It says, by taking the form of a servant, he took on humanity. He didn't lose any divinity. Jesus, fully God, fully man, took on the form of a servant, took on humanity. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This demonstration of humility. Now, now what, what is that? What is humility? The, the way I think most of us would understand it, it it's not self-deprecation at the expense of ourselves and thinking less of ourselves. Instead, it's having an accurate picture of Jesus and who I am in relationship to him. That I have an accurate understanding of who he is and then an accurate understanding of who I am in relationship to him. What is that? By faith, he says, we are heirs of the kingdom with him. That, that we are deeply loved and valued. We have an accurate picture of who he is and who I am in relationship to him. So how? How might I grow in what it means to have humility? And hear me say the irony is not lost on me as I'm the one on stage talking about humility. Hear me say I do understand that. How do we grow in genuine humility? I think one of the ways there is a growing experience of just how glorious God is. When we look around us, when we wake up in the morning, when we drink our coffee, when we see these global affairs, is there a growing recognition of God's glory and his sovereignty in all things, his preeminence, is that growing in us? And then the second way is not one that I often long for, and yet it seems what God does to draw us to himself. Suffering. The way God seems to work, and I don't pray for this. Instead, I pray for healing, and I pray for reconciliation. I pray for better circumstances. And yet, what does God seem to do? We have our desired state, and we have our actual state. Where we are, things might not be as well as we'd like them to be. What do we cry for? God, heal my circumstances. If you just did this, then my life would be a little bit better. And yet, what God seems to do is in the midst of those challenging circumstances, grow us in humility. Grow our dependence on him. When you reach your limit of what you're able to accomplish, I was just talking on the phone with someone recently, battling some some 9 and 10 level pain that they just can't figure out what the answer is. Where does that bring you? Does it bring you to a place of, I can do more and try harder and solve this? Or does it bring you to a recognition of God's preeminence in the midst of the challenging circumstances? We live with humility rather than be self-seeking. He gives us a third principle. We demonstrate compassion. We live with humility And then we reach out to those who are less fortunate. Here is the third principle he gives us. He said to them, who the man, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. Now, I don't think he's saying, don't invite your relatives for Thanksgiving. I don't think that's what he's saying. 
Though maybe some of you would prefer that's what he was saying right about now. You're like, oh, Jesus said I didn't have to invite these family members to Thanksgiving dinner. When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. What's he saying? Don't invite those that can repay you. Don't invest and pursue exclusively those that can repay you. And yet, what would be our tendency? I'll tell you what my tendency is when I help people move. One of the criteria is, can this person help move me in the future? Right? That's one of the criteria, right? Like, is this person able to return the favor at some later date when I need one of my pieces of furniture moved? Right? That's that's the way we go. What's What's he addressing? Don't exclusively invest in those who can repay you. What do the religious leaders do? Because again, what is this all grounded in? Jesus is just trying to give us principles for those who strive to enter by the narrow door. That's this whole section, right? The, relig- the religious leaders spent time with their peers and extended invitations to those who could return the favor. Jesus instead spent time with those who would not expect an invitation nor have some capacity to return the generosity that was given, the less fortunate. And so the question again becomes, so how? Because <laughs> I don't think that's a new principle, right? That it, does that strike you as like, wow, David, I've never considered that. But the question could be, how would we live with a mind and heart of generous relationship? It's our third value around here. What would generous relationship actually feel like and look like? How would we live? And I hope you feel it's mind and heart. We're convinced thinking leads to feeling leads to living. Like those feelings. What, what, what are feelings? It, they're like the idiot lights of faith, right? On a dashboard, when my check engine light comes on, it's like, hey, David, you should check your engine. When my window washer fluid light comes on on my dashboard, hey, David, you should check your window washer fluid. When we experience some emotion, what's it telling us about what we believe? What it feels like we often do is we bypass those feelings, like good Midwesterners that we are, right? We just stuff those feelings down as far as we possibly can, right, Scott? It's like, man, shove those emotions down, don't feel anything, and then just go straight to doing. Jesus instead seems to say, no, thinking leads to feeling, leads to doing. And so what would it look like? What would it look like to live with a mind and heart of generous relationships that embodies this principle Jesus is calling his host to? Again, I just find that fascinating. While he's talking to someone who's invited him for his... You guys ever do that? Someone invites you over to the home, and then the first thing you do is you just blitz them with all the areas of growth. Jesus just says, hey, let me tell you guys where you can grow. So what would it look like? The first one? And this might have already welled up in your heart when you heard that third principle. We do not act out of obligation. We do not act out of obligation. There's so many needs, so many opportunities, and sometimes it's like heart-wrenching. Am I supposed to do that? Is that where I'm supposed to be? Is that, I, I just feel like I have to and I ought and I should. We don't act out of obligation, and nor do we see ourselves trying to earn God's approval. 
Am I acting in a way because I think I'm supposed to pay God back to earn his approval based upon my behaviors? We don't act out of obligation and we don't try to earn his approval. Instead, we do look to meet the needs of others, small or big. And so if there is an opportunity to step into and your heart is unwilling to go there to extend a demonstration of generous relationships, we don't say just force yourself. Instead, we say, why am I feeling that way? Why is this so hard for me to demonstrate some level of compassion for those that are less fortunate? We look to meet the needs of others, big and small. Small in the sense of a care package, a meal, a ride. I feel like sometimes we confuse. It has to be in the demonstration of the big for it to count. Instead, it is in these small acts that happen every single day, purposeful, intentional, meaningful demonstrations We look to meet the needs of others. And we only act from a place of genuine, joyful expression of the love we've received. If you feel like you're welling this up from your own ability, we're missing the very essence of what it means that God has demonstrated his grace to us. And from that place, we reach out to those who are less fortunate. You might say, but David, I don't know anyone less fortunate To which we say, man, it feels like the needs are always limitless, limitless around us if we have eyes to see in our homes, our neighborhoods, our state, and and we feel most recently with the impact of Israel, our world. And then Jesus offers this. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. What's Jesus' promise? There is a blessing, there is a joy, there is a reward for the act. Not to earn, but Jesus promises you will be blessed. When? For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. (laughs) You know, I'd really love a return now though. Wouldn't that be better? And yet Jesus says the principle of the kingdom is demonstrating care and love that stems from our thinking to our feeling, to our doing. And so, who comes to mind? Even in this moment, who comes to mind that you'd say needs compassion? Who's someone that you would genuinely invest in who might not be able to actually give you any return and would never expect hospitality from you? With our mind, with our heart, who is that? The encouragement? Show them Jesus' love this week in our Monday to Saturday. These principles of what it means to demonstrate our relationship to God. And then the fourth, we eagerly express a desire to accept and share his kingdom invitation. Pick it up at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat. Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The people he was engaging with shared a lot of what he believed, but began making it about rules rather than flowing from God's character. Blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a... The response from some was of excuses. 
They all began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. It harkens back to in Luke 9, we saw some similar excuses. Here's a couple of them. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head to another. He said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. A reasonable excuse. Lord, let me first say well to those at my home. He gives some context here. I bought a field. I have yoke of oxen. I've married a wife. And yet what we see with these religious leaders compared to Jesus' call There is a party, the invites go out, but the excuses come in on why this is beyond what they're capable. Jesus is on to say to those who made excuses and to his servants, the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Don't think purely physical. And the servant said, sir, you've commanded what has been done and still there's room. And the master said, go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. Why? For I tell you, for my house may be filled, and I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. There is a call. Strive to enter the narrow door. This is what kingdom living looks like, accepting the invitation and then sharing the invitation. So don't miss Jesus' heart. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children, and yet you were not willing. Brendan Manning in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, speaks about this. Here's how he describes this call. These sinners, these people you despise are nearer to God than you. It is not the hookers and the thieves who find it most difficult to repent. It is you who are so secure in your piety and pretense that you have no need of conversion. They may have disobeyed God's call. Their professions have debased them, but they have now shown sorrow and repentance. More than any of that, these are the people who appreciate his goodness. They are parading into the kingdom of God before you and they have what you lack, a deep gratitude for God's love and a deep wonder at his mercy. Have we accepted the invitation and are we sharing the invitation? And so we see this consistently since Luke 11, Jesus is gathering his people and people are responding. And so the immediate most obvious question is, have we accepted this invite? Is there really more joy in Christ than anything else this life has to offer? We get to make that decision every single day of leaning more into what it means to choose Jesus. That he does truly satisfy. If we've accepted this invitation, we begin expressing this living proof in our context. What would it look like for us where we're planted to demonstrate this living proof? We do this collectively and individually. Individually, it looks not like Adding something to your plate. Do you hear me? Add something to your plate. I hope you hear redeem the circumstances and the places and spheres we're already invested. Where we coach sports, our hobbies, our coffee shops, our neighborhood, our school, our vocations. What does it look like to continue to demonstrate compassion, to live with humility, to seek those who are less fortunate, who can't pay us back, and then demonstrate an invitation into the kingdom around here? We do have an organized pathway of inviting people into the kingdom. 
This, this triple treat, do not see triple treat purely through the lens of giving candy. See it through the lens of an invitation into the kingdom through a meaningful, tangible, concrete way of Hillcrest doing something collectively. But I hope it's not just us collectively. I do long for us as individuals in our public, our social, our personal spaces to invite people in a communion with God. And so what would that look like in your public, in your social in your personal spaces, ultimately, not to say, hey, bring him to David so David can share some, some insightful ideas and invitation of the gospel, but so that God will be working in and through you. If you haven't, I would encourage you or your life group to apply for this Everyday Missionary Fund, a creative idea on how you might actually be demonstrating being the hands and feet of what it means to be living proof of a loving God. And so we extend invitations. We remind, we bring people to triple treat and we pray and we watch and we step. And so I'm gonna invite Brenda Anderson up because there's a collective opportunity in addition to triple treat we take advantage of every year. Uh, and it is through Samaritan's Purse and, uh, and these shoe boxes. And so Brenda, why, why don't you share a little bit of what this collective opportunity looks like? Okay. Yeah, I'm excited to share about a chance to be generous to those that are less fortunate than us through Operation Christmas Child. And this may look like an ordinary shoebox to you, but this is actually a gospel opportunity. I have uh, chosen to pack this box for a girl ages 10 to 14. And I put in some school supplies, some hygiene items, and some little toys, and just things that to make her smile, some hair products, some hair bands and things. And the goal is to send this box It'll be used by a church in their outreach. They share the gospel and give the children a gift as a tangible expression of God's love. And then give them the opportunity to uh, take a discipleship class and learn a little bit more about who Jesus is and his love and care for them. Mm -hmm. And it just gives me joy to know that a child somewhere that I don't know, and I don't know what country they're in or where it's going, but God already knows what country this box is going to, what child will receive it, and the Holy Spirit is working to prepare a heart to hear the gospel, and we hope respond to it. We want everyone to have that opportunity. Hmm. Um, Last year, Hillcrest packed 128 boxes, and many of those boxes went to Nigeria, which is in West Africa. And Nigeria is a hard place to live. They deal with high inflation, They deal with bandits and terrorists, and Christians are persecuted there. Churches are burned there. And um, so we sent dozens of boxes there, and we did hear back from one family that had received at least one of our boxes. And so I'm going to read to you just a little bit of a letter that they sent um, back. The English isn't perfect, but I think the message is clear. Good morning from the entire Abednego's family here in Lagos, Nigeria. Thanks for your prayers, and we received your gift boxes, which is very huge and big surprise to us. May Almighty God continue to bless and prosper your family. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Blessing, and my husband's name is Abednego. We have five children, three daughters and two sons. We have also two adopted sons, Victor and Bright. They were all excited about the gifts, thankful, and we all prayed for your family. 
We are from the state called Enugu in the eastern part of Nigeria, but we currently reside in Lagos State, a western part of Nigeria. In the vacation period, we also travel to our state of origin for small farming and gardening, where we grow cassava, yam, maize, and vegetables. But this year, we couldn't go because we had a change of government with unfavorable economic policies, which even affected our business. Indeed, the gift boxes were a blessing to us and added more smiles to our children. Thanks once again and best regards to the entire family. So in this case, the box went to a family where the parents clearly know the Lord, and so it could serve as an affirmation to their children. Yes, God sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and he really cares for you. And so we could just be part of their discipleship journey, and they would have had the chance to take the discipleship class as well. Um, So if you're interested in participating in this way, if God is calling you to do that, please stop by our table out in the lobby, and we can give you more information. Um, If there are some of you who don't uh, particularly enjoy shopping or think, I don't know what to pack for a child, you can also... Um, pack a box online. It takes five to ten minutes, and you just, they ask you to choose the gender and the age of the child you want to pack a box for, and then you just choose between items, and it's real easy. You click, I want to send a soccer ball, or I want to send a stuffed animal, and then you choose some hygiene items and school supplies, and um, it's very simple. So um, if you're interested, please stop at our table and start praying about Um, the boxes that Hillcrest will send, even if you're not personally going to be participating. Mm. And lastly, if you're going to pack a box, I really encourage you to put in a personal note because that just means a lot to them. They'd like to know a little about you, and it gives you a chance to say, God knows you. He made you, he loves you, and he sees you. And just kind of helps open their heart to be more open maybe to learning who this God is. Yeah, so I, I remember when we were in Kosovo, when Casey and I were out there, and uh, I remember seeing uh, these boxes get opened up from a truck and distributed by the local church we were serving with there, and how meaningful it was for this church to be resourced and supported as they were uh, investing in their community. So it's a phenomenal way. We get to partner with local churches, Big C Church, all across the globe in, in a meaningful, tangible way. So, Brenda, would you just pray for us? Wherever that generous relationship heart might be stirring in you, how we might step into that uh, this week, if you'll pray that over us. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you that you have blessed us so abundantly, and we thank you especially for the, the blessing of knowing you and having heard the gospel ourselves. And help us not to be inward focused this week, um, but to look around to those in our neighborhood our workplace, wherever we are, that we might see opportunities to share those uh, little gospel stories, little bits of you that might open people's hearts and their minds. Help us to be bold in reaching out to neighbors uh, about Triple Treat this next week and um, to care for children in our own neighborhoods that way. And Also help us to look broadly out into the world. It's hard to hear the news. It's hard to see the suffering that some people are doing and are are enduring. And I just pray that you would uh, 
give us opportunities like this to, to reach out in small ways uh, that you may be calling us to and to reach to people in poverty and especially those who uh, are in the poverty of not knowing you. We want to give, we want to give the gospel uh, to the world and open our eyes to that privilege and that opportunity to be generous and help us to know more of you ourselves, to seek you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.